It's hard to overestimate the great value of Luke's letter to Theophilus about the birth of and the early infancy of the New Testament church. How the, the Lord's church began and all of the things that it faced and encountered. As we begin with Acts chapter 6, we're going to talk about some problems. And the truth is that problems happen. They happen in our families. They happen in our workplace. They happen in our churches as well. Churches will often find themselves encountering difficulties at various times inside that local congregation. And there are two ways that a person can look at the problems that develop in their lives. They can look at them as something that is bitter, something that is, why did I have this problem? To begin to accuse, to begin to lay blame. Or a person can look at them and then say, I'm going to let this make me better. I'm going to take the problems that have been presented before me and make something good from them. And I'm going to try to find a positive solution. Of course, the devil seeks for us to have confusion, suspicion, division. Just like in our country right now, there's a very deep divide. And sometimes within among the Lord's people, we have a deep divide. It's the devil behind that, not God. And when you and I as his people seek to try to find solutions and we seek to try to find the proper way to do things, that's when we are godly people. God has a special people who can solve problems using some sacred principles. I'd suggest to you that our study of the book of Acts is not just about our learning how to become New Testament Christians. It certainly is that. It's valuable to study the book of Acts and say, what did a person do to be saved? But when you look at this book, you ought to look at it as God's divine revelation to provide for us guidance, direction, and principles of how to handle issues that will arise among us. Here's what we're going to do as we study together this morning. We're going to look at the problem in verse 1. Then we're going to look at the potential that was there to make the church better and even to make the church grow further. And then finally, the persons who were involved. Let's begin and let's look at Acts 3 through 5 as a whole. Right after the establishment of the church in Acts chapter 2, you have Peter and John going to the temple to pray. And they encounter a man who could not walk and Peter and John gave him the ability to walk through the Lord's hand. When that took place, many people began to listen to say, who are these people? What kind of miracle did they perform? And they preached Jesus raised from the dead. What that resulted in was a persecution on the part of the chief priests and the scribes, and particularly those who were of the Sadducees. They threatened them, and then they later imprisoned them. We studied about that last week. We see the church being opposed 
and we see the conflict coming from without. But when we get to Acts 6, we start seeing difficulties come from within. As when Paul wrote the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians chapter 7 and verse 5, he says, For indeed, when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were troubled on every side. Outside were conflicts, inside were fears. And the truth is, is that most of us, we are at least mentally ready to meet the challenge that comes to us from those who are on the outside. I expect the devil's people to oppose us. But rarely are we ready. We are disarmed when the challenges come from within. That is from within those in the Lord's body. I could give you several illustrations of this, but let me just use one to begin with. If you'll remember when the children of Israel were returning from the Babylonian captivity, they were led by Nehemiah back to the city of Jerusalem to rebuild the walls. When Nehemiah came back and he surveyed the situation and he saw the needs, he set out immediately to begin to restore the walls. But there were three people, Sambalat, Tobiah, and Geshem, who were really ready to try to make his life difficult. And they did. They tried to frustrate him at every point. There was the threats, there was the mockings, the belittlings. But yet when you come to Nehemiah chapter 5, there's another challenge that arises. You see, everything else up to that point had come from the outside. But now, as Nehemiah begins to look for workers on the wall, they're, they're not there. And the question is asked, where are the workers? Well, they've been sold into captivity to their Hebrew brethren. And now because they are owing, they're in debt to these masters, they can't come and work on the wall. Nehemiah confronts them and says, you're not doing right. The law says that you turn a Hebrew slave free after so many years. And so what was taking place, Nehemiah had to say, we've got a problem here, we've got to resolve it. Sometimes problems come from within. Often, we find ourselves being betrayed by those who are a part of the body. David was betrayed by his good friend Ahithophel, and in Psalms 41 verse 9, even my own familiar friend, in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. And obviously that also had application with Jesus and with Judas. But now let's look at the problem. If you want to keep your Bibles open there to Acts 6 verse 1, let's look again very carefully at that verse and see what the problem really was. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists because their widows were neglected and the daily distribution. Now notice how Luke says, those days, when he says when, there is a, a great growth that's taking place in the church. You started out in Acts 2 with 3,000. You moved to chapter 5, and now you have got, you've had 5,000, and now multitudes, both men and women. The church is growing by leaps and bounds. 
I don't know how many people were a part of the congregation, but it definitely doubled in size. For you, for just a moment, I'd like for you to imagine what would happen if a congregation like us went from being 300 people to 600 people to 900 people. And you start saying, wow, that'd be a lot of people. Where would you put them all? How would you know everybody who's a part of that congregation? But here we're told that there was a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. Now, if you don't understand who these two groups are, you really won't appreciate what's going on. The Hebrews are those who were born and lived in Judea. They lived in in the promised land. They spoke the language of Hebrew or Aramaic, the, the language of the people. Those who were Hellenists, or if you're reading the King James, Grecians, are also Jews, but they live throughout the rest of the world. In fact, if you're reading 1 Peter chapter 3, or chapter 1, verse 1, he talks about those who are of the dispersion from Pontus, Galatia, Bithynia, Cappadocia, which happens to be in the middle part of Turkey. There are people who live all over the world and they come back for those three feasts each year, you know, the Pentecost, Passover, Feast of Tabernacles. And as they would come in, they would bring with them a different culture. They probably dressed differently. They definitely spoke differently. You know, we have some of our friends who live above the Mason-Dixon line and they come down and they speak to us and we say, well, you've got an accent. And they look at us and say, you have an accent. When we go to Canada and knock doors, one of the first things, you'll go up to someone's door and you'll speak to them. They'll say, we're here with the Selkirk Church of Christ. And they'll look and they'll say, you're not from here. Can you talk a little bit more? We like to hear you guys speak. You recognize there's a difference. Imagine here is a congregation and you have Jewish people who speak Hebrew and you have Jewish people who speak Greek. And you see the, the distinction, the cultural difference between them. Now here is the issue. The daily distribution. And someone says, what was a daily distribution? Imagine a soup kitchen kitchen where people come who are needy and they, they get a bowl of soup and then the next one comes in. There was a daily distribution to provide for those who were widows. The Old Testament was very um, explicit about how you should take care of widows. There was a, a plan for those who gleaned their fields to leave a certain portion for those who were the needy of the land. And the Bible spoke often about taking care of those who were widows. There was a daily feeding of these widow women. And we realize that some of them would have been from far off areas. Now the text says there was a complaint now, uh, if you look up the original word, this is a real interesting word because it's not as if the Greek-speaking Jews went to the apostles and said, we've got a problem that needs to be resolved. That's not the word. According to Bauer, Danker, Art, and Gingrich, it's an utterance made in a low tone of voice. 
says it's behind the scenes talk. It's the kind is, can you believe that they're skipping our widows? Reckon why they're doing this. It's this under the tone, muffled complaint. It's not as if somebody's come and said, here's our problem, let's resolve it. It's just you have the talk in the background. And there's now a real problem that's arisen. Now, when you start thinking about that, I, I want to refer you to a couple of passages which I think may be helpful. Philippians 2, verse 14, Paul writes, Do all things without complaining and disputing. 1 Peter 4, 9, Be hospitable to one another without grumbling. Both of those refer to, again to that under-the-tone voice that says, I am tired of doing this. I'm tired of taking care of this. I don't want to do this. The Greek-speaking Jews looked at the Hebrew brethren and said to them, they're not taking care of us. They're neglecting our widows. Now, that raises an issue. Why did this problem arise? What brought it about? Was it due to oversight or negligence? Now, I want you to think for just a moment. What if we went from 300 to 600 to 900? Someone says, well, who are all the widows? And what are their needs? Now, let me even say, let's, let's look at it this way. What if we go from 600 to 900 and a third of our audience are people who are from a foreign country? Oh, yeah, they can speak English, but they're from a foreign country. Do you suppose that we might not know as well those who have a different culture and a different background? Could it be that of oversight? Yes, it could have been. The text does not tell us. But there's also the fact that there could have been a racial prejudice. You see, the Jews who looked at those living outside of Judea as being not as good of a Jew as those who lived inside. These are people who are no longer keeping our culture. They're no longer speaking our language. And so it's possible that some of them were being overlooked due to their culture. But here's what we do know. Feelings were hurt. And widows were hungry. That's the bottom line. People's feelings were hurt and the widows were hungry. Now, I want you to imagine yourself in the position of these people. Everybody's name who has worked hard is mentioned, but your name's left out. What are you going to do? Are you going to go to the elders and say, why was my name left out? No, you're probably not going to do that. But in your, under your breath, you're probably going to say, they just don't care about what I do. They don't value me as a person. I want you to understand the feelings that were really hurt here and the widows were hungry. The problem had to be addressed. It's a real problem and it has a real need. Now, what that is going to do is going to bring me to the solution. And let's look at the potential here. Would it be better if we never had any problems at all? Most of us would immediately say, oh yeah, I'd love to never have any problems. 
Well, I want to see if that's really the, the best course or not. You see, problems have the potential for development. When you and I face difficulties and we find solutions and we overcome, then there are some benefit to that. Listen to James chapter 1, verses 2 through 4. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Do you hear James say that when you encounter these kinds of situations, that it can make you better? Or listen to Hebrews chapter 12, verses 9 through 11. Furthermore, we had human fathers who corrected us and we paid them respect. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the Father of spirits and live? For they indeed chastened us, or for a few days chastened us, as it seemed best to them. But he for our profit that we might be partakers of his holiness. Now, no chastening seems to be joyful for the present, but painful. Nevertheless, afterward it yields a peaceable fruit of, of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. If I were to ask you, was it good for you as a young person to have done something so that your parents could have corrected you and made you capable of dealing with difficulties that rise in your life? You say, yeah, it was. It was good. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12, 9 and 10, Paul, as he prayed that the thorn in the flesh would leave him, he said, God's response was, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul would go on to say, Therefore I will take pleasure in infirmities and in reproaches, in needs and persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake, for when I am weak, then I am strong. So you say, well, maybe there is some value in facing a difficulty or facing a problem. Paul would say in Romans 5, verse 3, and not only that, but we glory in tribulations and knowing that tribulation produces perseverance and perseverance character and character hope. It makes us who we are and what we are. Now let's, for just a moment, think just a little bit deeper about this. You see, the Lord's church is going to grow because God has a plan for it to go not only to Judea, or Jerusalem, Judea, but then to Samaria, and then ultimately to the uttermost parts of the earth, Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. He's got this plan in mind, and you've got to look and say, okay, is God bringing the church along slowly so that they can see how to resolve these issues? First problem you've got is Greek-speaking Jews having trouble with Hebrew-speaking Jews. If they can't resolve this problem, how will they ever be able to address the Gentile issue that's going to come up in Acts chapter 10? You see, God is allowing these problems to develop so that they can resolve them, so they can begin to see the Lord's church not as a Jewish-only group, but as God has said, in every nation he who fears God and works righteousness 
is accepted with him. You see, God's wanting oneness in his church. He's wanting it to be neither Jew nor Greek, nor bond nor free, nor male nor female. God is looking for oneness. In fact, that's what Jesus prayed for in John 17, 20 and 21. I do not pray for these only, but also for all who will believe on me through their word. That they all may be one, Father, as you are in me, and I in you, that they also may be one in us. That the world may believe that you sent me. When Paul writes the Ephesians, he describes it like this. He himself is our peace who made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation. That Old Testament law was a separator between Jew and Gentile. That's been broken down. And it says that he himself might create in us one new man thus making peace. God had a plan. You see, this plan involves benevolence, helping somebody who is in need. Benevolence can help heal breaches. There are times when people who may be at odds with one another and one of them get in need and then the other side comes and says, let me help you. It's amazing how you can tear down walls so quickly when somebody stretches out a hand and says, let me help you while you need it. In Romans chapter 15, Paul's writing about the contribution that was going to the needy saints in Jerusalem. Those funds were taken from the churches of Macedonia and Achaia, And Galatia, you know what the predominant composure of those congregations was? Gentile. And if you go to Romans 15, he says, But now I'm going to Jerusalem to minister to the saints. For it pleased those from Macedonia and Achaia to make a certain contribution for the poor among the saints who are in Jerusalem. It pleased them indeed, and they are their debtors. For if the Gentiles have been partakers of their spiritual things... Their duty is also to minister to them in material things. There's going to be a great healing between Jew and Gentile when Paul brings those great gifts to the needy in Jerusalem. Now we've talked about, first of all, the problem. We've talked about the potential now to, for something good to come from this. Let's talk about the person's. We've already talked about the Hebrews and the Hellenists or the Hebrews and the Grecians. Let's talk about the other two groups that are involved here. The apostles and the seven. Because when you start reading this, you realize that the apostles are actively leading and these seven have a job to do. Let's let's talk about them. The apostles are clearly in the leadership role. They're in the leadership role with regards to the receiving of the money. They're also in the leadership role with regards to the appointing of those men to serve. Let's notice carefully uh, chapter 4, verses 34 through 37, and then chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. We learned that there was a desire to be compassionate and shared. Said in verse 34 of chapter 4, Now was there anyone among them who lacked, for all who were possessors of lands and houses sold them and 
brought the proceeds of the things that were sold and laid them at the apostles' feet. We go on to learn Barnabas had a piece of land. He sold it. And what did he do? In verse 37, he laid it at the apostles' feet. The apostles were those who had the charge of leading and that money was given. They took care of it. But now notice with me to chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of disciples. The twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples. They called the congregation together. They said, we've got something to present to you. It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren... Seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and the wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. Notice carefully here that what takes place, the twelve are involved in trying to resolve this issue with them. It is important that they preach and pray. In chapter 6, verse 4, but we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. I think sometimes we would look at the apostles and say, well, why did they need to pray so much? What was the reason for their not getting out and doing these menial tasks that need to be, oh no, that's not it at all. They need to be praying. They need to be asking for God's blessings on his church. They have a job that they uniquely can fill. They are witnesses of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now let's look at the seven for just a moment. These are great men for an important task. All of these Grecian widows that are being excluded, overlooked, neglected, are going to need to be fed. And so what does he do? He chooses these men. Now, we sometimes refer to them as the first deacons. The word deacon is not found in the text, but they are definitely servants, and that's what a deacon is. They're men of sterling character, morally qualified, good reputation. These are the kind of men that you could look at and say, There's not a thing that you can say about them that is negative. There are men whose lives stand out as being morally good that other people could emulate. They're also full of the Holy Spirit. That could mean that the apostles had laid their hands on them and they had the ability to work miracles. Or it's possible that they have the fruit of the Spirit in their life. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, long-suffering, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control against such. There is no law. And they're full of wisdom. Notice he didn't say full of knowledge. They're full of wisdom. Wisdom is the application of knowledge. There's sometimes that we know what we ought to do, but we don't do it. We do unwise things. These are wise men. They know what to do and they do what is good and right. 
Now, as you look at their names, all seven are Greek names. The first one is Stephen. We'll be studying about him in a future lesson as the first Christian martyr from Acts chapter 7. Philip, the evangelist. We read about him in Acts 8. We read about him in Acts 21 verse 8 where we learn that he is called Philip the evangelist and that he worked in Caesarea. But then we learn there was Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas. And you say, why did you pause on him? Because he was a proselyte from Antioch. A proselyte. That means he used to be a Greek, a Gentile. But now he is a child of God. He first became a Jew and now he is a Christian. And he's also from Antioch. There's something valuable in that. Now let's try to bundle this all back up together again. Here's a situation where the church was suffering and it was replaced with a successful solution. A problem arose and what did they do with the problem? Did they make it worse by trying to divide up sides? No, no, no. A solution was sought that would make the church whole again. The widows were fed, the breaches were healed, and the text says the church continued to grow. The church continued to grow. When you and I have problems, what are we to look for? Are we to choose up sides and say, I'm going to be on this side or that side? No. We're to seek for solutions. Solutions where the church can continue to grow and be one body. Or as we studied a couple of weeks ago, all together in one accord. With God on our side, all things are possible. Are you here this morning and not a Christian? What a great privilege it is to be a child of God. All of the blessings that go with that of being a child of God involves our having our sins forgiven. Acts chapter 2 verse 38. We are then now placed within the body, the church. Acts chapter 2 verse 47. We are now capable of, of serving God and and being functional in his body, the church. What you must do is believe that Jesus is the Christ, repent of your sins, confess that faith, and be baptized. This morning, if you want to do that, everything's ready. The baptistry behind me is filled, the water is warm, and there's clothing that's available. If you're a child of God and you look and you say, you know what? I've not been trying to be a part of a solution. I've been part of a problem. Part of my problem is I've not been living a faithful Christian life. Now's your time to come home. We're going to sing the song, There's a Stranger at the Door, Let Him In. Would you come as together we stand and sing? <laughs>